0: I'm excited I got in here this morning and there were no birds in the ceiling. You were here last week, it was quite a show. Uh, But we've returned to our regular Sunday routine without live animals, so that's good. (laughs) Yeah, so open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you. We're going to be in chapter 11. And last week, we, we started taking a look at, at Jesus' kind of interaction with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was having some trouble uh, with doubt. We talked about doubt. And the reason he was doubting is because he was in prison. And he wasn't expecting to be in prison. He, was, he thought he was the... Um, forerunner of the messiah the the one who would announce the coming of the king and and he thought things would go well for him because of that and they didn't he he got arrested he got thrown in prison and so he sends some messengers to jesus and he says is are you are you the one we're looking for or or should we look for another cuz this doesn't seem like it's going well and And Jesus reported back to John that yes, he's the Messiah and things look a little different than maybe John was expecting. But this all happens in public and there's a crowd of people around. And so Jesus turns and addresses the crowd in these next verses. And and what I wanna kind of key in on today starts with a real American idea, which is this phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everybody familiar with this? This comes from the Declaration of Independence. I'm going to leave life alone today, but I want to talk about liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Um, as Americans, we, we're all about the pursuit of happiness. We pursue happiness with everything that we have, everything that is in us. We, we spend money. We spend time, we focus on relationships or neglect relationships, all in the pursuit of happiness. But the weird thing is, is we are a culture that's increasingly unhappy. We we strive and strive to get new things and new experiences and, and put forth a, an Instagram version of ourselves to the world. And yet, they're, we're just not that happy. There's an organization called the World Happiness Report, which sounds like a cool place to work. Uh, but they, they poll countries all over the world. And, and according to their statistics, happiness peaked in the United States in the early 1990s. And I was 10 in the early 1990s, and I was pretty happy. So I can see why that's the case. But it's been declining ever since. 2017 Harris Poll found that 33% of Americans said they were happy. Only 33%. And so culturally, we are not happy. We're on this search for satisfaction, for joy, for happiness, and we can't find it. But then we've got this other thing that we do as Americans. We've got this liberty thing. Liberty is like foundational to who we are. There's You you probably have seen the old flag that was popular during the American Revolution with the snake on it that said, don't tread on me. It was this value that we had even in our infancy that we were not going to be told what to do. And you fast forward that to today, and you look at conservative politics, and, and they very much would say, you can't tell me what to do. And then you look at liberal politics, and they would say, you can't tell me what to do for a whole host of other reasons. And everybody just feels like I'm independent. I'm an autonomous self. I'm not going to be told what to do by anyone else, and I'm going to pursue happiness however I want to pursue it. And you're not allowed to critique that. You're not allowed to make suggestions. You're not allowed to say that that's probably not the best way to go for you, because we value liberty and we value the pursuit of happiness. And then we, what we do is we bring that into the church with us. We bring that into our Christian experience. And, and we approach God. We approach Jesus. We approach the kingdom with a list of demands about how this is going to go, how we're going to get satisfaction. But the truth is, is we're not going to be satisfied in the kingdom of God if we demand it come on our own terms. We talked a little bit last week about how this is is a reason for doubt. We we approach our faith, we approach our experience with God with a list of things that we want to happen and they don't happen the way we want them to. And then we we don't question our list of things that we think are gonna make us happy. We question who Jesus is. Is God faithful? Did I believe a lie? What's wrong with the church? And it brings doubt. And this is what was happening with John last week. He, he has this expectation that Jesus is gonna come. He's gonna be a great political military leader. He's gonna kick out the Roman government. He's gonna set up a government under God. John's kind of going to be his right-hand man. It's going to be a sweet job. That doesn't happen. John gets thrown in prison and he doubts Jesus. But then as we pick up here, Jesus is not going to doubt John. Jesus isn't going to say anything negative about John. He's going to defend John. And the reason, partially, that he's going to defend John is because John's doubts are the same as the crowd's doubts. All of these people sitting around thought John was a great guy, but now John's in prison. And and the popular view of the people in Israel of the day is that if God loves you, he will bless you. And John, obviously, is not being blessed, so he must not be loved by God. And so Jesus comes to his defense So I want to take a look at these verses and I want to point out some ways that we bring our own expectations, that we demand our own terms on the kingdom of God and ways that that fails us. So look at verse 7. As these men were leaving, as these messengers going back to John were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? And so Jesus asks this question of the crowds. Y'all went out into the wilderness to see John. And and John was this massively popular public figure in the first century. We can read historical accounts. The historian Josephus that wrote about a generation after Jesus, he spends more ink on John the Baptist than he does on Jesus. Because John the Baptist's influence in Israel was huge. So he's incredibly popular. And so Jesus said, you all went out to go see John. What did you go see? Did you see someone who was shifty, who changed their position based on the audience, who shifted their views to accommodate the cultural climate that they found themselves in? Did you find someone whose character was weak? And that's a rhetorical question. They didn't find that. But, But I think oftentimes we... We seek that out in our relationship with God. We seek that out in the kingdom. We we demand that if we're going to be satisfied by the kingdom of God, that we need to live a life of popularity. There's a lot going on in this world that flies in the face of the historic Christian faith, what we do with our bodies, what we think about issues, how we relate to one another. There are plenty of voices in our culture that would either just say that's old-fashioned or that's, that would say that's bigotry. And there's this, this temptation for us in the church to just kind of kind of shift our views a little bit, kind of get a little bit soft, not talk about important things or, or change our positions altogether. Maybe things will look better for us in the church if we, if we switch our views, if we just shift, if we bend. Jesus says, did you, did you see John the Baptist? Was that, was that what he was doing? The answer is no, he, he didn't do that. Verse eight, then, then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. Was John surrounding himself with the best that money could buy? Was that his thing? Was he wearing designer pants and designer shoes and, and all the best? And again, the answer is no. He wasn't doing that. But, but so often we can get into this habit of thinking like, you know, if we're going to serve God, if we're going to be faithful, we deserve to be wealthy. And there's huge... Swaths of the church today that would tell you that, that, that if God loves you, He's going to bless you financially. And if you're poor, it's because you don't have enough faith. Well, John was poor. John lived in the desert. He ate bugs. So Jesus says, no, that's, that's not what you saw when you went out to see John. Verse 9, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you and more than a prophet. So Jesus calls John a prophet. A prophet's a very specific kind of person in the Jewish culture. And a prophet is a little bit typically eccentric. He's a little bit weird. And this, this really dawned on me for the first time a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to someone talk about the prophets and and if you just think about like, what if, what if God like audibly started speaking to you and said, hey, hey, I want you to go out there and I want you to go tell these people this. I want you to go do this thing. Like after a while, I think you might get a little crazy. I mean, crazy in a good way, but like it's a little weird to get voices from God. And we see that in the Old Testament. We see Isaiah, God says, Isaiah, I want you to walk around naked to show the people what their future is gonna be like. And Isaiah does it that's weird. He tells Ezekiel, this is such a great story in Ezekiel. He says, things are going to be so bad for your people. I want you to illustrate that because I want you to make some bread out of these all random grains. And I want you to bake it on human dung. And Ezekiel's like, can it be animal dung? Does it have to be human dung? And then God goes, okay, fine. It can be animal dung. We'll compromise. And he goes out and does it as a a word picture to show the people like this army is coming and they're going to destroy you because you've left God and things are going to go so badly for you. But Ezekiel was weird. And we see John. John lives in the desert. He eats bugs. He yells at people. He's kind of weird, but... But the people, they they were excited about that because it was a prophet. Because there hadn't been a real prophet in Israel for a few hundred years. We're in the book of Matthew. The book before that is Malachi. There's like 400 years in between those two books. And the people of Israel hadn't heard from God in a long time. And they're excited about this prophet. In verse 10, Jesus says, This is the one about whom it is written. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus even quotes this book, the last book of the Old Testament. This is the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, that says that says where God says he's going to send a messenger before him, And Jesus says, up to this point in history, John the Baptist is the greatest person that's ever lived. But these disciples of Jesus, most of whom we don't know the names of, who's, who've been lost to history, they're greater than John the Baptist. And the reason for that is, well, John gets this privileged position to announce the coming of the king The Messiah is here. He's not going to see the kingdom come. He's going to, in a few chapters, he's going to be killed in prison, and these disciples are going to actually see Jesus bring about the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright has a really helpful illustration of this, I think, and um, he talks about. uh, He he says, imagine in the the late eighteen hundreds a a man who is world-renowned for being a carriage manufacturer. The mechanics of his carriages, the the woodworking, the the metalworking, it's all just exquisite. And people come from around the world to buy his carriages. And then imagine you go to a demonstration of something called an internal combustion engine automobile. And you see this thing. And you go back to this carriage manufacturer, and you say, you are the greatest human transportation creator in the world. But soon, the lowliest apprentice auto mechanic is going to be greater than you. Not because the carriage maker is bad, but because his time has come and gone, and something new is on the horizon. And this is what Jesus is saying, this, this, this prophet of God, this great man that hears the voice of the Lord and preaches the coming of the King is the greatest man who's ever lived, but God is doing something new. And in the future, even the simplest disciple, the simplest follower of Jesus is going to be greater than John the Baptist. Because we're going to be men and women who see the kingdom come. Look at verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence and the violent have been seizing it by force. So again, the crowd is, the crowd is doubting here that John is that great. Jesus is defending John's reputation because the crowd is thinking, well, John's in prison and God loves people and he blesses them. So, so he must not love John. And to kind of help his argument, Jesus says, since John began, the enemies of the kingdom have been attacking it. And this is what it is. John's imprisonment is an attack from the enemies of God. And this is going to increase as we get through Matthew's gospel. The religious leaders are going to begin attacking Jesus. The political leaders are going to begin attacking Jesus. The gospel is going to culminate in the crucifixion of Christ. So this violence done against the kingdom is not evidence that the kingdom is not advancing, but it is evidence instead that the kingdom is coming. The enemies of God are activating their troops because the king is on the way. And this is another thing I think that we, we tend to demand of the kingdom of God that will not work out for us. We, de, we demand a life of peace. I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to follow Jesus. I just want things to work out for me. I don't want any hassles. And Jesus over and over and over again shows that that's just not the case. If we're, we're involved in a war in the spiritual world and, and the powers of God's enemies do not want to see the kingdom advance. I was reading a little bit through the Screwtape Letters this week, is, if you've ever read um, the story by C.S. Lewis, it's a it's a set of letters from a senior demon to his junior demon nephew about how to tempt and and lead people astray and and when as as he writes, he talks about when when the subject of the demon's work is is being lazy, is in indulging in sin, is ignoring God. The work is easy, but when the fire of the gospel is planted in this person and they get excited about living under the kingship of Jesus, then the work for the demon gets hard. They have to step up their attack. They have to get more serious about harming this person because they're, they realize they're in a war. And so if we're walking in a way that is glorifying to God, if we're submitting our lives to the King, Jesus, things aren't always going to be easy. You might find that there's opposition. And as a caveat to that, though, it's important to remind ourselves that if we're opposed because we're jerks, that's not the same thing as being opposed because we're Christians. We, Joanne and I went to the park yesterday because they were having a um, LGBT Pride event. And I just wanted to go down and see what was going on. And uh, that community was, was celebrating. And, and there, were, there were three older guys off in the corner, just yelling how everybody was going to hell, or holding up signs that were just probably technically true, but just really, really awful. And uh, you can convince yourself that just being awful is the same thing as being righteous, being holy. But what struck me there is that there's this whole group of people that have believed a lie that have succumbed to things in their lives that, that they that they really that they don't understand. Maybe some of them do, but It was just sad for the pain involved in all of that. But then I looked over at these protesters, and I, you know, I thought the same thing. You know, no, nobody here is walking in step with Jesus everybody is is just for completely different reasons going their own way and seeking their own thing and and we need to be we need to be careful that we're not we're not using opposition we're not using persecution to to justify just being unchristlike in our community Look at verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He says, everything in your Bibles, Jewish people, everything in your scriptures points to this. He says this in several times in several different ways. When you read the Old Testament, one of the best things that you can do, because sometimes you read the Old Testament, and you just go like, I have no idea what this is about. This is super confusing. Jesus says over and over and over again, this book is about me. And so ask yourself that question. Like, okay, Jesus, how do I see you in here? When, when you tell the guy to build a fire out of dung and make bread on it, like, what does that have to do with you? And he'll, he'll show you. Because ultimately, the whole Old Testament points to Christ. Verse 14, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Jesus is referring again to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, the, almost the very last chapters or the very last verses of that book. Malachi chapter 4 says that before the coming of the Lord, God will send Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and, and prepare for the coming of God. And Jesus says, John is that prophet who was to come. And he says, if you're willing to accept it. And again, the reason they're not willing to accept it is, is the kingdom doesn't look like they wanted it to. They have a set of expectations. They have a way that they want it to go. And it doesn't look that way. It looks, it's happening differently than they hoped. Verse 15, let anyone who has ears listen. The first thing I, I love verse 15. The first thing about verse 15 that strikes me is that anyone that hears gets the opportunity to listen. Anybody in the crowd, there's not a there's not a secret club. There's not like some credentials. It's like anybody that hears gets the opportunity. You want to believe this? You want to follow this? You want to be a part of this revolution that I am bringing? Jesus says, listen. But then the other thing that I love about this is Jesus is just never really that concerned with explaining himself. You ever notice that? There's all of these times in the gospels where he just says some cryptic thing and then changes the subject. And like all of the public speaking classes and, and, and college courses and everything that I've ever t- taken have always said that that's just not a good idea. Like that doesn't, that doesn't help get your point across. That doesn't uh, help you connect to the audience. That's not a great technique for argumentation. But Jesus does it anyway. He says, hey, you know what? If you're listening, pay attention, and then we're done. Like, and he just doesn't he just doesn't go any farther. Like he, he'll take his disciples aside sometimes and explain to them what he's talking about. But with the crowds, he just leaves it mysterious sometimes. He leaves them hanging. He says, if you're really interested in this, commit yourself to it, study it, think about it. Because if we think about it, okay. He's saying that John is Elijah, and I know Malachi, and Malachi says that Elijah's coming. And then he quoted earlier in Malachi that John was this messenger that's coming before the Lord, and obviously John came and then announced Jesus, so then Jesus must be the Lord. and I mean, you can put the pieces together. It's not complicated, but Jesus doesn't feel the need to do that for us. He just... Leaves it hanging. And I think this is a fourth way that we come to the kingdom, that we come to Jesus demanding our own terms, and that's that we demand answers to all of our questions. Like, I will follow you if you tell me this and this and this and this and this makes sense and you figure this out for me and all of these pieces fit together. And having questions isn't a bad thing. We talked about that last week. We actually answered some questions or at least responded to them. And and it's good to ask questions, and it's helpful to ask questions. But the idea that Jesus is just there to dot all the I's and cross the T's for you so that all of your questions are answered, that's just not the vision of the kingdom that he puts forward. I've heard a lot over the years that um, pastors will say, like, Jesus puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. You ever hear that? which means that that Jesus doesn't make it hard to understand. And and a lot of times that's true. Jesus is the greatest teacher that ever lived and he gets his point across clearly, but sometimes he wants people to think. He wants people to stew over stuff and he doesn't doesn't put the cookies on the bottom shelf. He leaves them up here and, and says, if you really want these, you'll climb up here and get them. Anyone who has ears... Listen." And then he has an illustration. He says, to what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. And we sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. So he says children are outside playing a game, and there's two groups of them. And one group says, let's play wedding. And so they, they make some happy music. But then the other kids are like, no, we don't want to play wedding. We're not going to dance for your flute. But then the kids go, OK, well, then let's play funeral. And then they play some sad music, which is super morbid. I, don't have, I can't relate to these children at all. But <laughs> this is the illustration. Uh, let's play funeral. Let's play some sad music. And then the kids are like, no, we're not going to mourn. We're not doing that. See, this group of children, they just cannot be satisfied. Whatever the kids do, whatever game they suggest, these other kids are like, no, I'm not doing that. And Jesus says, you are like, this is what the crowd is like. For John came, neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. John, again, he, he's kind of weird. He lives out in the desert, needs bugs and honey, and he wears skins of animals for clothing. He's what we would say ascetic. He doesn't drink. He eats very simply. He leaves, leads a very um, simple, plain life. And he was accused of having a demon because he was so weird. And then Jesus comes along. Jesus eats and drinks. He goes to parties. He hangs out with people. He seems like a pretty fun guy in general. He's not terribly weird. And they say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners. See, the... However God sends someone to these people, they're just not gonna be satisfied. Just like us, we, we, are, we have liberty. We will find and pursue happiness how we want to pursue happiness and you're not telling me what to do. Jesus accuses the crowds of the same thing. You can't be satisfied. People weren't satisfied by the gritty, heavy handed, weird prophetic ministry of John, and they weren't satisfied by the more normal, celebratory, kind ministry of Jesus. And then Jesus says, Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. He basically ends the passage by saying, Just watch and see what happens. He's not, he's not going to do any more convincing right now. He's just going to say, you watch, and you see what happens. It's only trust me. The kingdom is coming. Trust me. We're not going to get into it today, but in a couple of weeks, we're going to go through verses 28 through 30, and I just want to read them real quick. Jesus says, come to me all of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus understands our pursuit of happiness and he doesn't condemn us for that. He doesn't say you people don't deserve to be happy. You people shouldn't be happy. Happiness is a waste of time. Godliness is misery. And I want you to be miserable because that's what God likes. He doesn't say that. He says, I know you're looking for happiness. I know you're looking for satisfaction and I know how to give it to you. And it's not what you think it is. We're only going to be satisfied by Jesus and the kingdom of God if we allow him to have authority over our lives on his terms. He says, take my yoke and learn from me. And you will find rest for your souls. The yoke is the the part of the plowing apparatus that sits on the neck of the oxen. Put this on, wear this, become one of my people and let me lead you. And this is what we are talking about when when we talk about becoming a Christian, following Jesus, being a citizen of the kingdom of God. There's so many other metaphors in scripture, being adopted as sons and daughters, children of the father. It's about setting aside our pursuit of happiness, our own goals, our own liberty, and coming under the authority of Christ, allowing him to say, this is what is best for you. Trust me. And we celebrate that in in baptism as, as as a way of expressing our death to our old life and new life in Christ. We celebrate that at the communion table when we remember his sacrifice for our sins and we acknowledge his presence inside of us. He gives us his spirit. Communion is nourishment. It represents nourishment for our souls through Christ. And I I find that in my own life, the pressure of the world around me is so great that I find myself forgetting that. I find myself thinking, like, I, I just wish it was easier. I wish, I wish I didn't have to have enemies. Why can't it just why can't I just get along with everybody regardless of what we all believe about the world? Or I think. God, if you love me, I could use some more money. It would be nice if I had a little bit fatter checking account, you know, like the people across the street or the people on my Instagram feed who are obviously beautiful and happy and wealthy and wonderful all the time. Or I think, God, life is hard. Why is life so hard? Don't you love me? And sometimes I think, yeah, I, I don't I don't understand right now. I don't have answers to this. I don't I I can't I can't explain this. And every single time those things well up in me, it's because I have forgotten that I am being satisfied by Christ on his terms and not satisfied by Christ on my own terms and the more all of us can continue to practice laying our own agendas down at the foot of the cross, the more satisfied we become in Jesus. And if we put the pieces together like Jesus asks the crowd to, John is the forerunner of the Messiah, the king. He announced Jesus. That means Jesus is the king. That means Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is pretty trustworthy if he is who he said he was. If we believe that he is the king of kings seated on the throne of heaven with all authority and power, like he's going to say at the end of this gospel, like we would just do well to trust him, to lay down the things that we are all about and pick up what he calls his yoke. And we will find rest for our souls, Jesus says. Sometimes it's hard to trust that, I think. Sometimes it's it's easy to doubt that, to think, things that we see in front of us, the thoughts that we have, the agendas that we've developed on our own, they feel a little more sure than trusting in Jesus. But he just kind of throws it out there. If you have ears to hear, listen, pay attention, trust me. It's my hope that we would be people that Practice that more and more in the days ahead. Because it's something that we have to remind ourselves of every day, sometimes every moment. A new challenge comes up. A new question comes up. A new fork in the road comes up. And we have to decide, are we going to pursue our own agenda for our own satisfaction on our own terms? Or are we going to lay that down and pursue satisfaction in Christ on his terms? So as we, as we sing a little bit more, the communion tables open, spend some time reflecting on, on what your agenda has been this week. Have you been running hard after your own pursuit of happiness, your own liberty? Are there ways that you need to kind of reorient yourself, reconnect to Jesus this morning, and say, you know what? I want to be under you, God. I want to be finding my satisfaction in you. And, and take the bread and take the cup and remind yourself of his sacrifice his, for sin and his presence in your life. If you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus' spirit lives inside of you. His power is a part of your life. And just pray that you would just remind yourself of that and ask him to make his presence known. God, thanks for a chance to gather, a chance to just sit at your feet, to hear you speak. God, I, I confess that I often just don't give a second thought to my own agenda because I just assume it's the right thing. I just assume it's going to make me happy. It's going to fulfill whatever hole that I think I have. And God, I just pray for all of us this morning that we would be people that submit to you in everything. That we say, what does your word say about this issue? Jesus, how would you respond in this situation? God, I want these things. Are they good for me or not? God, help us to reflect. Help us to take the time. God, you don't always paint all the details out for us. You just say, give this some thought. And I just pray that this morning, you would give us some space to just give that some thought, and let your spirit work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.